In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, Shennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all of the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and the, pal the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what, you are, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend upon him. But if you say to me, We are depending on the Lord our God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, You must worship before this altar. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending upon Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like yours, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says... The Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of all the nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seraphim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to deliver and save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. This is the word of the Lord. 
If you're not in Isaiah 36 yet, would you please turn to Isaiah 36? It's page 582 in the Bibles that the church provides. The situation in Judah at this time is that Assyria, the most powerful empire in the world, has invaded the country of Judah. Now you may remember from Isaiah chapter eight uh, that there was another crisis earlier in Israel's history when a man named Ahaz was king. And during the reign of Ahaz, Syria, not Assyria, but Syria and Israel formed an alliance and they were threatening to attack Judah. God said to Ahaz at the time, don't be afraid, I'll protect you. But Ahaz wouldn't listen. And so he made arrangements with the king of Assyria. He paid him money to come and rescue him from Syria and Israel. God said to Ahaz, because you did not trust me, but chose instead to trust money and your alliances, there will come a day when Assyria will invade. That day has come. Ahaz is no longer king because he did not trust in the Lord. Instead, his son Hezekiah is king. And unfortunately, in Israel, some of the same thinking from Ahaz is still present. We saw in Isaiah 30, God said, why are you consulting all these other people and not asking me? Why are you going to Egypt to make plans? And the leadership in Judah was making the same mistake in Hezekiah's day as they had made in Ahaz's day, except now to rescue them from Assyria, they're looking to Egypt to help them. Well, there's been no help. Assyria has come in from the north and obliterated almost all of Judah. 46 fortified towns, meaning towns with walls, have been besieged and destroyed. There are only two major cities left in Judah, Lachish and Jerusalem. Lachish is under siege by the Assyrians and it's going to fall. And Sennacherib sends an advance army to Jerusalem with a field commander to tell those who are in the city of Jerusalem behind the walls, your doom has come. And the field commander communicates a message. There are three of Hezekiah's cabinet who are up on the wall along with all the people. And the ambassadors from Assyria come and they are having this conversation for all to hear. And the field commander communicates a message from Sennacherib and it's a message filled with fear and discouragement and confusion. And in just a minute, I'm going to point out six things from Isaiah 36 that the field commander did which created fear and confusion and discouragement. And the reason we're going through these is because I think these are the same things Satan does today to you and to me when we're facing a difficult situation, a broken family, a health situation, a legal problem, a financial difficulty, a strained relationship, worries about loved ones, whatever it may be, in the midst of seemingly impossible circumstances, Satan does similar things to try to discourage us. What are those things? Six of them in our passage. The first is in verse six. 
Satan attacks us with God's truth. Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. That's what God said. God said that to Israel through Isaiah, saying, look, why are you going to Egypt? Egypt cannot help you. Egypt won't help you. And here, Satan is taking truth from God and using it to attack God's people. He still does this today. God sometimes encourages our hearts that workaholism, for example, is not the pathway to blessing. But when God does something like that, he tells us this is the pathway to blessing. Choose it. When he told Israel or Judah that Egypt would be no help, and that they shouldn't have gone and asked for help, he says, but I long to be merciful and compassionate to you. When Satan uses that truth, he says to us, workaholism is not going to get you the success that you want, but he does it not to bless us, but to beat us down. The second thing that the field commander does, verse 7, if you say to me we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? The second thing Satan does is he confuses us about what God really wants. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you hear that Hezekiah tore down the high places and the altars, and you think, good job. Like, that's what he's supposed to do. The problem is, is that if you're sitting on those walls in Jerusalem, the thoughts that are going to go through your mind are, well, Ahaz, when he was king, he left up the altars and the high places, and Assyria was our ally. Now we've torn them all down, and Assyria attacks us. In fact, Second Chronicles says it this way about Hezekiah. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. Now, that's not what we expect the Bible to say. We expect the Bible to say, after Hezekiah did faithfully what God asked him to do, the Lord blessed him and there were no problems whatsoever. But the truth of the matter is, all of his obedience led to this moment. And you can imagine the people on the walls saying, look, all that high place stuff and all that altar stuff, we shouldn't have done that. That's Satan confusing us thinking, well, maybe I haven't gone about this the right way. It's like, for example, if you've been desperately asking the Lord to provide you with a spouse, and you've been praying earnestly and faithfully, and you hear that little voice inside your head saying, God's not going to give you a spouse until you go out and make it happen yourself. That's not what God is asking you to do, but Satan loves to create confusion. He's doing that in this situation. Third thing, Satan loves to do. He loves to confront us with our own inabilities. Verse 8 Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. There aren't 2,000 people who can ride into battle. And so the field commander says, Yeah, I'd be glad to give you equipment. You just can't use it. 
Satan does the same to us. He reminds us in whatever situation we're in that we're not smart enough, powerful enough, wealthy enough, charismatic enough, whatever it may be, we're confronted with our own personal failures. And Satan discourages us with those. Fourth, verse 10. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Satan lies to us about God being our enemy. Please hear me correctly. There are times that God brings discipline into our lives. There are times that God allows suffering into our lives. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus, he will never seek to destroy you. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. God is never going to be against you. He is always for you. Even the discipline and the suffering are meant to bring about holiness and blessing. But in the midst of the suffering, we get confused and we hear Satan say, God's turned on you. God is against you. God does not want you to succeed. And it creates fear and discouragement and doubt. The fifth attack comes in verses 11 through 17. And this is a tricky one. What's going on is the field commander, his native language is Aramaic. That's the language of negotiations and of the empire, Aramaic. The people on the walls in Jerusalem speak Hebrew. The three members of the cabinet know Aramaic because that's what you do negotiations in. And so they say to the field commander, hey, 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 talk to us in Aramaic so all these people don't hear what you're saying. And the field commander's like, do you think I'm here to negotiate? I'm here to create fear. These are the people who are going to die in the siege. And then what he says to them is, to all the people in Hebrew, come make peace with my master. He'll give you a promised land, a land of your own, a land with your own fig trees and your own vines. Have you ever been in a situation where in the midst of this impossible thing that you're facing, maybe a marriage that's falling apart, Maybe a tax bill that's coming that you're not sure how you're going to pay for. And Satan uses that to embarrass and humiliate you in front of people that you love because there's nothing you can do to stop it. Or have you had the experience where he begins to suddenly lure children, family members, loved ones away, offering them pleasures that you can't give to them? Sex or drugs, alcohol, whatever it may be. And in the embarrassment and the humiliation, the powerlessness, you just simply have to sit and watch while he does these things. The sixth and final attack from Satan, verses 18 to 20, may be the most insidious of all. What he says in those verses is, God's not going to help. There are no more miracles. Have there been any miracles to this point? And you hear Satan's voice whispering in your ear. Look around at all the others that have had this diagnosis. Did any of them live? 
Look at all the others that went through this round of layoffs. Did any of them get their job saved? Look at all the others who've had teenage children. Did any of their children turn out okay? And this lie, this suddenly, yes, you can read these Bible stories, but nothing like that's ever going to happen for you. You can read about the miraculous interventions of God and Satan whispers in your ear, he's not going to show up for you in this situation. You're on your own. But what's Hezekiah's response when faced with such an overwhelming set of discouragement, fear, and confusion? Chapter 37, verses one to four. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. Hezekiah does what most of us would do. He finds the holiest person he knows and says, will you pray for me? He says, hey, look, we got Isaiah. Isaiah's a prophet. He's got some sort of special connection to God. Let's go ask Isaiah to pray for us. Now, please hear me right. There's nothing wrong in asking someone else to pray for you. In fact, it's a good thing. When you and I humble ourselves and share with somebody, you know what? There is a tidal wave coming and it's going to crush me. Would you please pray for me? That's a humble thing and God blesses that humility. When we in our passionate desire to see God show up and do something, to take care of the barrenness we've been struggling with, to help us in the midst of the financial situation, and we ask everybody we know, hey look, please would you pray for me? That's an expression of earnestness. It's an expression of faith. And God is pleased with that. And so Hezekiah says, Isaiah, would you please pray for us? And so Isaiah does. And look, verse five. When King Hezekiah's officials come to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down by the sword. Praise the Lord. Good news. Hezekiah says, we're in deep trouble. Somebody go ask Isaiah to pray. They go and ask Isaiah to pray. Isaiah prays, and he comes back and he says, don't be afraid. Deliverance is coming. Great. Thank you, Jesus. What a wonderful thing. The problem is, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I have. The mountain doesn't move yet. In fact, in the next set of verses, it gets worse. What Sennacherib does is he writes a letter on a scroll and he sends it to Hezekiah and essentially he says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm coming for you and you are in real trouble. 
And I don't know if you've had this experience where, again, you're facing a tidal wave, something very difficult in your life, and you go find people and you ask them to pray for you and you say, hey, look, this person's faithful in prayer. I'm going to go ask them to pray or this person seems to have some sort of connection to God. I'm going to ask them to pray. And maybe they pray. Your Bible study group's been praying for you. Your family's been praying for you. And one person in your group says, hey, I've been praying earnestly and the Lord told me it's going to be okay. And you think, sweet. And then comes the letter. The letter that says the mountain hasn't moved. The letter says the mountain's coming for you. And all of a sudden, any peace that you had is suddenly washed away. And you're drowning again. What I want you to notice is what Hezekiah does in this situation. Verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these people and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Did you catch the difference? The first scenario, he goes and asks Isaiah to pray. Now here's the thing, God did answer. God told him it was gonna be okay. Well, why did God allow this second letter to come? Why did God allow things to get worse? Because the point is God doesn't just want to rescue Judah. He wants to engage with Hezekiah. Did you notice in verse 4 of chapter 37? When Hezekiah is asking Isaiah to pray, almost at the end of the verse, rebuke him for the words, the Lord, your God, Isaiah's God. Do you see what's changed by the time we get to verse 20? It's now our God. Hezekiah, you're my God. And God has allowed it to get to this point because this is what he was always waiting for. Please hear me. If you go back into Isaiah, you will find God has already predicted that Assyria is not going to win. He said this back in chapter 8 when he said that they were going to come in the future. He said, but I will destroy them. What's not changed is what God's plans are. What is changing is that God wants to engage with Hezekiah. God wants to engage with you and with me. And the mountain that's there is for this reason. Now Hezekiah does this really interesting thing. He takes the scroll, the letter, and he rolls it out in the temple in front of the Lord. It's a beautiful picture. What's he doing? Well, it's a symbolic act. And I think it symbolizes three things. The first thing it symbolizes is that Hezekiah believes 
that he serves a personal God, a God who knows how to read, a God to whom he can turn over this letter. It's possible for you and I simply to think that God is an idea or a construct or that Christianity is some sort of just kind of religion. This is a reminder that we are asking for help from a real person. You ever had the experience where you get a bill or an email that you didn't want to receive or some sort of complaint from a customer or whatever, and you go into your boss's office or you go into your spouse or you go into a loved one and you say, here, did you see what I got? And they say, okay, leave it with me. I'll take care of it. Why do they do that? Because there's a relationship. This is what Hezekiah is doing. He's acknowledging, look, Lord, we've got a relationship. I got something I can't handle. I'm bringing you the bill. I'm bringing you the taxes. I'm bringing you the layoff notice. I'm bringing you the summons from court. If you didn't read it before, read it now. Do you see what it says? I'm in trouble. Please, will you help me? And it's acknowledgement that God can read, that God can see, that God can respond, that God can help. The second thing it's an affirmation of It's a reminder of the contract that we have with God. The scroll is laid before the altar because Hezekiah is claiming, we are your people. You swore you would never leave us or forsake us. I'm here to claim that truth. It's like you go to the store. And you buy a purse or something. And you come home and the purse is defective. You go back to the store and what do you pull out to show them that they should give you your money back? A receipt. It's a contract. Look, we had a deal. You're going to provide me with a purse. I gave you some money. You need to keep your end of the deal. This is what Hezekiah is doing. God, you swore. You would never leave us or forsake us. You promised you would be close to the brokenhearted. You are our God. We are your children. God, you are my father. I am here. You swore you would help me. And by unrolling the scroll in front of him, Hezekiah is staking his claim. God, you cannot ignore this. You cannot look away. You are under contract. And it's true. Please. This may sound irreverent, it's not. God has sworn by the blood of his son Jesus that he will never leave you or forsake you. That there will be no problem or trouble or mountain that comes your way that he will abandon you to. And so Hezekiah is simply rolling out the scroll saying, I'm here to claim what you promised you would give. The third thing I think it symbolizes And this is especially why it's in the temple. It's an act of worship. You think about when you come to the temple, what are you bringing to the temple? You're bringing a sacrifice, something that is pleasing to the Lord. You know, we think about coming to church and we when we're here, we take up an offering. And this offering is a sacrifice of our financial resources to say to God, you're a worthy God. You're worthy of our money. And God is pleased with that. And we come to church, 
And we offer him a sacrifice of praise. We sing songs that exalt his name because he's worthy of our praise. Do you see what Hezekiah is doing? He's offering God a sacrifice of his problems. And that's an act of worship. And God is pleased with it. This is why Revelation tells us the aroma that is swirling around heaven are the prayers of the saints. It's an act of worship to give this over to the Lord. In fact, this is how you know the difference between false gods and the true God. False gods, glad to receive your money, glad to receive your praise, want nothing to do with your problems. Our God isn't just interested in your money or your praise. He wants your problems. Come and lay them out before me. Cast your cares on me. I care for you in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your requests to the Lord as an offering and as a sacrifice. We sometimes think, and this is the lie from Satan, no, God doesn't want to be bothered with my little issues. He's got a whole universe to run. He's not going to be bothered with mine. Please, that is not true. When you offer to God your problems, it is a glorious worship. We would never say to a person who brings the little two cents that they have and give that in the offering, oh, God doesn't want that. Same way, we would never say, don't bring your small problems to God. He is glorified by whatever you give him. And we think to ourselves, I'd be glad to pray for others, but I don't want to ask of anything for myself. That's a lie from Satan that keeps you from glorifying God. When you bring your problem and you lay it down before him, he's worshiped and glorified in that. There's a person in our congregation uh, his name's Don Armbrester. He's a deacon currently, uh, as actually serves as the treasurer of the church. Uh, he told me a story that I remembered uh, went with Isaiah 37, and he talked about how he practically did Isaiah 37 in his own life. Uh, a few years ago, he was involved in the sale of a business that he was a part owner of, and Isaiah 37 was what God used to encourage him to bring in all the documents as they came, the legal documents for the sale of the company and the choice of who to sell it to and all of those kinds of things. And he brought them here into this sanctuary uh, to this space. I believe these steps were up here. And during the week, he would just lay them out and pray over them. That's an act of worship. It's a reminder, hey, look, God, we're in this together. Lord, you can read. You understand all the legal terms. What are we supposed to do here, God? A woman in our congregation shared a story. This week, also from Isaiah 37, uh, how she received uh, some legal notices about one of her children. And that, of course, fills you with great fear and dread. And whenever those would arrive, she would simply literally take them and lay them out before the Lord on her bed at home and give them to the Lord. That's what Hezekiah is doing. Now look at the response. Do you hear that? God wants this. Verse 21, then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Did you hear that? Because you prayed because you've done this because you laid out this scroll before me this is what God says and then we don't have time to look at it please go home and read verses 22 
to 35 and see God's response. What you're going to notice when you do that is in substance, nothing's really changed from what he told Isaiah before. Assyria is not going to win. But what he spent two verses telling Isaiah, he now gives Isaiah 13 verses to write on a scroll to hand to Hezekiah, more than just in his ear, something written. And if you read these 13 verses, you're going to find that God overcomes the discouragement and the fear and the doubts that the field commander raised. He talks about the fact that he is with him, that he loves him. He talks about the fact that there is no arrow that's going to be fired in this city, that he will be absolutely destroyed. And what Hezekiah gets back is not necessarily a change, but what Hezekiah gets back is a fuller revelation of who God is and what he's up to. And all the discouragements and all the doubts and all the fears and all the confusions that Satan had sowed, God in his interaction with Hezekiah, removes one by one. And then verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. I have an assignment for you. I'd like you to take out your notes, if you have them, from your worship folder. If not, if you have a piece of paper, uh, great. Uh, Please use that if you have a pen. If not, there are some pens actually down in the seat in between seats. Please feel free to use one of those. In just a moment, I'm going to give you a couple minutes to do this. But what I want you to do is I want you to think about whatever situation, that mountain, that impossible thing, the thing that Satan keeps attacking you about, the thing that you think is hopeless, whatever that may be, and I want you to write it. There's a little gray box on those notes, or you can just write it on a piece of paper. And when I give you a few minutes, I want you to write down a few things about that situation. Now. You may think, okay, I know what's coming. We're going to write this down, and then we're all going to come forward and lay it on the steps. No. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take it home. There may be some legal documents or some tax forms or some divorce papers or a letter from a person complaining, whatever it may be. There may be some other documents that you need. And what I want you to do is take that piece of paper and any other of those documents, and I want you to come back sometime this week. The sanctuary will be open all week, and I want you to come and just lay them on the steps and pray over them. Now, if it's legal documents, and please don't leave them here. Uh, <laughs> pray over them and give them to the Lord. You can take them to the prayer garden. Lay them out before the Lord and pray over them. Amen. You can do it in your home. There is something powerful about coming to this place. But you can lay them out on your bed or in your prayer closet or whatever they may be. And you say, well, is there any magic? There is something symbolic to taking those documents and presenting them before the Lord and saying, God, I know that you are a real living person. You can read. Do you see what it says? 
Do you see that number right there, Lord? Here's the bank account. Here's what I owe. How are those two numbers going to work? It's a reminder to God that he's under contractual obligation to do something about it. And it's an act of worship. And if you want to take the time to drive back here in the middle of the week and lay them out before the Lord in this sanctuary at these steps in that prayer garden or wherever it may be, don't think that God's not going to see that. (laughs) Don't think he's not going to be honored by that. He will. So take a few minutes and in that little box, make whatever notes you need to make about that situation. Uh, And then Tom's going to come up and uh, share with us something that encourages us as we close out our time together. As we're all thinking about what we want to lay before the Lord in prayer, I would like to encourage you with a way that the Lord answered our prayers as a church family. In 2015, we asked you to pray and ask God how he would have you participate in our Grace Beyond Building Project. In order to complete the project, we needed to raise $28.6 million. Our initial round of pledging totaled, to be honest, a discouraging $13.5 million, less than half of what we'd need to complete the project. Yet we took this to the Lord in prayer, and we felt that he was encouraging us to trust him and to continue. Now, nearly four years later, and almost at the completion of the giving cycle, we have much, much to celebrate. At this moment, we have paid back nearly $28 million of the $28.6 million total. Yes. To be more specific, to be more specific, that means that by the end of April, Lord willing, we will only owe $600,000. God answers prayer. And you know this because you laid these prayers before the Lord and he miraculously responded to your prayers. I have heard your stories. I know that this is true. God answers our prayers. And now as we enter the season of Lent in 10 days, we want to continue to celebrate God's presence in our lives, his miraculous movement within this church and offer to him a sacrifice of praise. So throughout Lent, we are going to individually seek the presence of the Lord and then we are going to gather here on Sunday mornings and we are going to praise him because there is no God like our God.